Hello and welcome to the 10th episode of Mike McNair's Revolutionary Strategy Series. Today is Friday the 10th of May 2019 and I'm your host Tom O'Brien. This week we commence Chapter 4, War and Revolutionary Strategy. We are joined by show stalwarts Lexi of Swampside Chats and Sophie of Trans Trans Revolution. This week I have the new patrons Jonathan Carlson, Lido, Indescript and Matthew Markham to thank. That's 52 patrons in total now, so the patron-only monthly episode is upon us. Thanks to everybody for your support. The commie badges are going into production this week and will be in the post presently. You too can join the Patreon gang gang for only $5 a month, which works out at $1 an episode. When we hit 100 patrons, the patron-only podcast will become a fortnightly endeavour. All episodes will, of course, be released in a staggered manner for the plebs. If you'd like to comment on the show, please do so on the YouTube channel and make sure to like, subscribe and share. You can also join me on Facebook or Twitter too. Okay, to the discussion. Today we've got chapter four of Mike McNair Revolutionary Strategy Series and we're on to the chapter which is about war and revolutionary strategy. I, I When I read this the first time, this chapter, I kind of found it irrelevant, but I, I must say I really liked it this time. What, what are your take on it? I guess my take was I didn't dislike it when I first read it. I just found it kind of confusing, partially because this is where McNair gets the most into like sectarian squabbling in the UK and elsewhere, but largely in the UK. And that's like kind of obscuring. Another thing that's been kind of like an ongoing theme with me in this book is that it's apparent that McNair did not have the United States in mind at all when writing this because there's just so much that's different. In this chapter in particular, it seems like there's like a lot more that's applicable than normal because when we're talking about like the state and this idea of like of a socialist party winning a majority in the parliament and trying to enact an, a minimum program. And when you do, you trigger a civil war and a revolution in your country. That's not really feasible in the United States. But when we're talking about imperialism and war, that's like we're in the be- belly of the beast here. You know, with that being said, there it, it's still difficult for me, you know, when he's talking about like Lenin's proclamation or whatever that we need to recruit the armed forces and agitate, you know, anti-war propaganda, my thought initially is, okay, how? How do we do that in the United States when the workers' movement is so weak and the propaganda coming from the U.S. military is so fucking strong and everywhere, you know? I I honestly agree that for any revolution to be successful, we need a, a good portion of the military to break off and support the revolutionaries. It's nearly impossible otherwise. But the idea of how do we do that, it seems almost impossible right now, right? And Lenin's so emphatic about this that you're basically a traitor if you're not doing this. But in my mind, it seems like building more civilian institutions or whatever you want to call it now is seems like the more feasible thing to do. And then as the United States imperialist machine starts to fall apart more, soldiers aren't getting their benefits and pay as much, then you will be like, hey, like these people don't fucking care about you. And it's already kind of begun. Like the, the VA is a fucking nightmare from what I've heard. So yeah, the U.S. Veterans Administration. Yes. So I guess my reaction is a bit different because I'm a bookish Marxist 
with my agency consigned to history instead of actually looking at. I thought you were a robotic dog. Who well, am I talking I to? I don't really see the difference personally, but <laughs> the point being is that um, I think when I was reading this as a you know a young person trying not to be a Trotskyist and look, trying to figure out how to keep the Occupy flame burning or something, you know, I was probably looking at it like this. But um, as a you know pro-revolutionary nerd that is not imagining myself to be leading the rev myself, I found this pretty illuminating. And probably when I read this book the first time, this was a chapter that I probably understood the least. And I guess the qualification I would say is not so much that this is the chapter where he most goes into the sectlet, you know, marginalia, but it's the one where that sectlet marginalia is most relevant right. to the main point. Like Tom and I have at, at times been like, oh man, if we were going to do an American edition of this, we just cut out all the alphabet soup yeah. of, you know, little leftist sects in the UK because that would like obscure the point. Well, well here, you know, we would need to like, we'd have to use a scalpel and not a, um, not a machete when dealing with that stuff because the response of Trotsky and the, and the fourth international, basically the sort of Trotskyist attempt at, at a sequel to the third international that ends up actually being relevant when trying to figure out what the quote proper position for you know your national communist party to talk about the affairs of the world and this this one invades that one and that sort of thing and i guess the thing that i like about it the most is that it sort of sets up the rest of the book and the thing thing i like about it the most is that it detangles the question of the the split itself from the military policy that lenin is advocating or the the attitude towards the military that lenin is advocating Trotskyists, as he gets into later in the chapter, invoke World War I and the struggle against Kautsky as a basic purity test. Mm -hmm. This becomes totally dehistoricized and ends up a sort of, I don't know, shibboleth, right? It ends up like a sort of, um, like a, a re religious obsession, a sort of fetish that revolutionary purity is projected onto. And this does a good job of dissecting that basic pamphlet brain mistake. Like a lot of this is about the ins and outs on which side should we take? What strategy should we put forward for people in the Imperial South or whatever you want to, you know, the colonies, you know, Ireland would have been one, you know, what should British or workers should have, how should they have responded, say, to the Irish Revolution or stuff like that? I think that's, that's fair enough. But the bit that interests me most in the in this chapter was his critique of Lenin. And he kind of makes a critique about, well, I don't know if it's so much Lenin, but of Leninists. And it's about how this purifying split became such a component of Leninism. Let me read these couple of little paragraphs here. Strategic alternatives. There are three core elements of strategy proposed by the common turn and its leadership. Okay, Lexi, who are the common uh -huh. turn? So the common turn is the third international, the communist international. This is the organization set up by the Bolsheviks as an attempt to create basically a new international network of socialist parties. Now it's important that the second international like basically defamed itself and, and made itself like anathema to most socialists. You know, most socialists worldwide had, had a problem with what the Second International ended up doing, but that wouldn't have mattered 
if there was no pole of recruitment. Mm -hmm. So after the Russian Revolution, the Third International started to come into into being as a way of at first just sort of aligning against the social democratic national patriots and anyone that was gonna break bread with them or stay in a party with them but eventually that desire to break ended up leading to an export essentially of lenin's strategy of the bolshevik strategy this was most associated with uh, zinoviev who is another Bolshe, and what was called the 21 conditions for joining the common turn. This is where Leninism, as we know it, starts to really come into being as the export okay. of the Bolshevik strategy. Let me continue and read this. The first and the essence of the split was Lenin's response to World War I, the idea of a defeatist policy. Okay, the second was the idea of the split itself. This started with the notion that the organizational separation from the right and the creation of a new type of international and a new type of party would immunize the workers' movement against repeating the right's betrayals. In 1921 to 22, it became apparent, Carmen Turn's leadership, that the right and center could not be easily disposed of, and the strategic problem of workers' unity and the question of government reposed itself in the form of the United Front policy. But this policy stood in contradiction to the concept of the party established in 20 to 21 and proved shortly. So this is the United Front policy. This is the policy of being in coalition with the right. Well, coalition in a specific sense where it would never be a governing coalition. That's the way McNair puts it. Because there's a popular front and there's a United Front. The popular front is where they subsume themselves in and hide themselves in another organization. And then the United it, Front is where they will support on certain policies. It's complicated. In short, I would put it down to this. The popular front is the right-wing strategy of not necessarily like liquidating your force into the Democratic Party or something, but just, you know, totally throwing in, let's say, the Communist Party, lining it right up with, you know, a bourgeois party and entering coalition in order to keep out fascists and this sort of thing. Whereas the proper united front policy was something along the lines of being able to join in w in reform efforts and like you know advocate for legislation as long as you do not go into coalition with and and you don't lend formal support to a bourgeois party so you give like voting support but not you won't take government seats or say you're in the government well it's super complicated there's a huge gray area and basically what McNair ends up arguing in the chapter on the United Front is that what Trotskyists call the United Front has a lot more in common with the Popular Front than the United Front that, that they're kind of hearkening towards. So I'd say that there's a sort of gray area that causes a problem for the concept of the United Front. Okay, so the first was the defeatist policy. The second is this idea of the split from the right of the party. And the third was the problem of what form of authority could pose an alternative to the capitalist political order. Beginning with all power to the Soviets, the Comintern leadership had shifted by 1920 to the idea that the dictatorship of the proletariat was necessarily the dictatorship of the workers' vanguard party. The United Front turn of 1921-22 entailed a shift here as well to the idea of a workers' or workers' and farmers' government as the immediate alternative to capitalist rule.
So this is getting towards the idea that you know the party would become all powerful, a, a joining up of the peasantry and the proletariat. Also, a chapter on what he calls the workers' government slogan. <laughs> that kind of demonstrates maybe where he falls on that by calling it a slogan and <laughs> not an idea or a concept or a government. Yeah. He's going to go on here yeah. and talk about war and betrayal. So he's going to talk about what happened with the SPD. He's going to talk about some stuff that Engels said in 1891 about mm -hmm. what would happen if the Germany were attacked by Russia and France on German soil. Sophie, do you want to go? Uh, sure. If the war had appeared as Engels imagined it in 1891 as a revanchist attack by France on Germany with Russian support and had been fought on German soil, the defenseless policy of the SPD might have been vindicated. However, the partial success of the Schlieffen plan to outflank the French armies by attacking through Belgium and the weakness of the Tsarist army meant that the war was not fought on German soil. Moreover, both the long background of the rising inter-imperialist inter tensions and the immediate diplomatic context, German support of an Austrian ultimatum against Serbia for supporting what would now be called terrorism, made German policy appear aggressive, not defensive. And then he goes on to talk about how the idea was they thought that the war would be very short when they voted right. for it in 1914. And they thought that it would probably be a kind of a defensive war. But it ended up being just a plain old imperial war, not fought on German soil and everything that came from it. A quote that I I like, you know, that just sort of describes the general mood in, in a socialist movement is that um, factories of murder were to run for another four years. The socialist leaderships had ended up accepting responsibility for an, for an enormous crime against the working class and humanity in general. And this was do it, to do with the, the failure of, of this Schlieffen plan. Or not, not exactly failure, but it, di it didn't, didn't exactly work as they thought it would. Even if that plan had succeeded and made it a short war, regardless of that, the German Germany bourgeoisie ended up looking and actually was in a lot of ways an aggressor rather than being defensive. And so this whole idea was moot. And it, it seems like kind of what one of the points that McNair is making is that people took Engels' uh, argument and ignored all context and just kind of ran with it. And, and similar things happen with Lenin. Yeah, that's certainly opportunistic. Right. Yeah. I mean, and, and even Lenin himself argued against this kind of misinterpretation of angles and other contexts. And so it's just funny how this keeps happening. Now, Mc McNair does also argue, though, that if, you know, the war had actually been short, maybe this wouldn't have mattered so much. <laughs> it would have mattered much less, but I think... I would say that, you know, aggressive posturing by a bourgeois military is not a good good look for socialists, even if it's short. I guess that uh, the argument I'm talking about is part of uh, McNair's detangling of what his argument is from the historical argument. The other thing is not as like if, if that war ended in one year or six months, another war or World War II or something similar wouldn't have happened with the tensions building up between the imperialist classes. Something right, was going to right. happen at some stage or other, unless, yeah, it, unless they all happen to actually find the nuclear bomb. It might not have opened up a, a revolutionary possibility in the same way in Russia. That's, I guess, McNair's overall point with that. In the midst of all of this, Lenin put forward a slogan, turn the imperialist war into a civil war. His idea for this was the war was going to be a predatory imperialist war for the redivision of the world. 
So that seems like reasonably reasonable strategy. With equal determination, he argued for a, de a decisive break with the right wing and indeed from all those socialists who supported their own governments in the war. A section of the left and centre endeavoured in vain to restore the honour of the socialists by convening the Simmerwald, the Kintel and the Stockholm conferences from 1915 to 1917 of socialists to promote a peace policy. As the true nature of the war became clear, elements of the centre, who had initially gone with the right, turned to an anti-war policy, but they still clung to the idea of re-establishing the unity of the international. Lenin now argued for a decisive break with the anti-war centre as well as the right, on the basis that the centre's pacifist line merely covered for the right. So Lenin went for a full-on split here with everybody. He argued for a split with everybody who wasn't up for a split. Is that essentially what he did? More or less, but the reasons why he argued for a split was a for the right who went full full on for this war uh, in the center who went full on for the war, but b for you know any socialist essentially who is promoting this vague notion of peace that didn't really go hard in for revolution, right? Like, w what is peace when when we're waging class war? You know, yeah. The, uh, the center was was the pacifist that the, that pacifist line, the sort of anti-war unity line, was taken up by the center. And that was interpreted by Lenin and, you know, just a lot of people in the socialist movement as not not a strong enough position. But even people that didn't think it was a strong enough position were like, whoa, split from the whole movement. And so even the Bolsheviks themselves, it was very difficult for Lenin to get this line through, of course, until the October Revolution, it, it seems. You know, we're such, you know, we, we've, we've grown up in a time in countries where there's no war or anything like that. And all this stuff, when I read it, <laughs> when you get down to it, like sometimes it seems very, it seems very hardcore militant, doesn't it? You know? Oh, yeah. I mean, for me, I feel like I've, I have grown up with war and it's always been like kind of hidden in the background. But, you know, being a teenager during the Bush era and seeing this so called war and terrorism devolve into this like, almost uh orwellian concept of never-ending war right like how can you win a war on terrorism and then they go and say that we won the war on terrorism several times and yet we're still fighting yeah but i think what tom is getting at is that you know it's it's not like there's universal conscription right it's not it's not like yeah, uh, in in israel everybody goes to in, you know there's not bombs yeah. dropping in arizona you're not talking about action even though like this they're all foreign wars you know, you can live your life in America and, and never know there was a war going on. Same like you could in UK. Well, to, to be so fair, like, in the United States, that that like what was the last invasion on American soil was uh, by Pancho Villa <laughs> in, in the Mexican Revolution. Yeah, you know, and he and he didn't in, invade because he thought he could win. He invaded to in, in like to bring down the wrath of the United States government on on the Mexican government. So like. It, it's a little different in the United States, but I, but I I know what you're getting at. I think yeah. the difference is in universal conscription or the expectation that everyone's going to go fight in a war. That that since they abolished the draft, you know, during the the New Left period and the anti-Vietnam War period, there's been a huge change mm -hmm. in the way that the average American, you know, relates to war. I really get into the reading of this, and then sometimes it goes. And it just it feels like as a somebody who's like into Marx and into communism and I'm reading this stuff and like that. And then there's a paragraph where he talks in that type of strong language and you kind of go, wow, that's very far removed from my life. Yeah. 
I um I was in a I don't know like a critical thinking class in like a community college in Northern California, and uh, the teacher was like a, a Trotskyist. You know what I mean? And I remember being in like a discussion with a classmate when we were reading some labor thing because he was trying to convert the class to Trotskyist, um, and. You know, he kind of like pointed at like the person I was talking to, the, the student I was talking to, pointed at the word militant, and sort of laughed, and was like, "What is, what does that mean? You know, what is a labor militant?" Just like the the concept of militancy was laughable to this person. You know, we live in some cute, cuddly times in terms of the sort of like expectations that we're all going to go to war, and of course, like most people's everyday lives is anything but cute and cuddly. But we, we live in a very weird kind of domesticated sort of management. It's hard for me to even have the words to talk about what makes our lives different than, you know, the lives of most people in history. <laughs> mm -hmm. But it is very much one where our ability to defend ourselves is, is alienated. And the ability that we will defend anyone else is not expected. So what made, you know, the projects I was involved with, you know, Redneck Revolt was so scary to people, even so-called socialists, because people are so used to not having to worry about that. But it, in a sense, but in a sense, that's not true, because right. people who are, people are attacked all the time by bigots and what have you, you know, like I had, there was this British communist who got all like anti-gun on me and I was <laughs> shook, you know, how could you call yourself a communist and get all cagey about defending ourselves and, and firearms because how do you think a revolution is going to happen you know yeah I, anyway i would think i would think the vast majority <clears throat> of british communists are anti-gun i mean you're probably right but so much the worse for british communism the communist party of great britain you know the version of the communist party of great britain that we are concerned with because we're reading uh, mike mcnair argues for a you know republican you know arming of the workers so um I, I think in the context of the UK, that must be especially a hard, uh, hard sell. People are discontent to throw acid on each other instead. So where are we going to go from here? So basically, it wasn't until after the October Revolution that people started listening to Lenin on this line of the big split. Yeah. He got like a lot of kudos for, by the course, what happened in history then. Sometimes people stand are too hard for the Bolsheviks and for Lenin, but something that is kind of true is that as a grouping, there was not really a lot of people in, in favor of the October Revolution that were like, you know, socialist parties and stuff like that. And the Bolshevik faction of their party was super on board and loudly calling for the October Rev. So that really did give them a lot of credibility that parties like the socialist revolutionaries that were more split or the Menshevik faction of their party who, who ha did have a portion that ended up going for October, uh, gave the Bolsheviks a credibility that nobody else really had. All right, so let me read this. Lenin's line was given strong apparent justification by the course of events. On the one hand, the October Revolution, plus the new regime's ability to hold power into 1918, seemed to confirm the claims of defeatism positively. On the other, the responses of the Russian, German, and international right and center to the February and October revolutions and the 1918 through 19 revolution in Germany seemed to negatively confirm the need for a rigorous split. A large enough minority of the parties of the Second International, including majorities in France and Italy, was willing to split from the right to support the proclamation of the Third International in 1919. It sh should be noted that those communist parties in France and Italy 
became the major left-wing parties of the post-war order after 1945. The, the CPF was a, a big force, or the PCF was a big force in French politics. The Italian Communist Party ended up being the largest in the West after, after World War II. So we're going to get on here to the 21 conditions of this, the common turn. So this is essentially the third, would we call this the third international, the common turn? Yes, the, th the third international, the communist international, the common turn. When I read common turn, I always just think of like an intern working in a factory. <laughs> I never oh. think about international. Well, that's the dark side of being an internationalist, I suppose. It's like a dot-com intern. That's what I always read as. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> Positively yeah. nightmarish. The Steve Jobs International. Well, I mean, I, I guess a lot of Leninist, <laughs> yeah, a lot of Leninist student labor is unpaid. So there's, Oof. I guess there's a lot of interns in these, you know, in the international socialist organization, for instance. That's true. Let's have a look at some of these hard ass conditions that Lenin put into this international. Uh, let me read one here. Condition six. Let's try this one. It provided that it is the duty of any party wishing to belong to the third international to expose not only avowed social patriotism, but also the falsehood and hypocrisy of social pacifism. He's going hard there. So he's basically saying like, you have to be a militant revolutionary to, to join our gang. Oh, yeah. I'm not saying you no, can't be, be a wishy-washy, blah, blah, blah. So he's getting rid of, is that getting rid of the center? The way I would like understand this is essentially that it sort of redefines what a center really is. And that doesn't mean that when people use the word center, that they're consistent with what I'm talking about. But like unequivocally, like the center, quote unquote, of the socialist movement from, you know, 1914 to 1918 you know, moves, moves from Berlin to Moscow um, and people that are looking for a socialist alternative end up adopting a very different set of politics than they would have, you know, five years, 10 years prior. I mean, yeah, if, if you if you scroll through the 21 conditions, it's in the, what is this, the second Congress of the Communist International? Yeah, the, the terms of admission to the Communist International is what it's called on Marxist.org. It talks about the center specifically and how to get rid of them. But uh, again, center is, is being used in a way that McNair points to. He's like, look, pe most people use this as, a, as an insult. And McNair is trying to reconstruct a position mm -hmm basically that takes on the criticisms of the historic center, but that engages in what he judges to be the strategy of the center. So I think the easiest way to put this is, is the difference between Kotskyism proper versus Neo-Kotskyism. Yeah, is a selective agreement with some of these 21 conditions. And a lot of squabbling between Neo-Kotskyists is just how many conditions to take on. Okay, let's try the next condition then. Condition four required that persistent and systematic propaganda and agitation must be conducted in the armed forces and communist cells formed in every military unit. In the main, communists will have to do this work illegally. Failure to engage in it would be tantamount to a betrayal of their revolutionary duty and incompatible with membership in the Third International. Again, um, this, pretty hardcore. Very, very hardcore. Very hardcore. For me, like, I think this condition is one that's worth adopting. But this is where, like, I can't see any feasible way we could counteract the huge amount of propaganda, both within the military and within civilian media. How, how can we fight that 
in the United States, the world's largest military apparatus. This is incredibly important for any revolution to be successful, to have a good chunk of the military break off and support you. Any, you know, listening to Mike Duncan's Revolutions podcast, like, honestly makes or breaks a revolution before it even gets off the ground is do you have like a civic guard side with the revolutionaries instead of with the government? I think that is just a, a fucking fact. If we had a communist party in the United States, I don't know if we could join the common turn. You know what I mean? Like what about the Vietnam War? Like there's people joining the actual joining the army to go in to mess it up. You know? But again, there's a draft. I but, think that's the real difference. Like right now, there's like socialism or communism is only on the, on the baby step. So right. it's just it's just not something that's going to happen now. You could do it, but you know, it's not going to happen. It's not going to have any major effect until enough people are radical and it well, will so, have an effect. Yeah, this is like the height of the socialist mov- movement at, at that time. Well, but, but also to put the matter, to kind of locate this in, in our history, you know, how hard should we should we as socialists be lobbying for our socialist youths that come to us to join the military and yeah, to yeah. do propagandizing and and you know illegal subversion within the military yeah it may, that makes me queasy honestly like i don't you know what i mean like that, that's fucking hell but if if they were already going to the military that's different it's it's just a whole different ball game and i'm not even saying this to to say that you know we shouldn't be doing this because you know historically it's like the one constant you need you know, either military, usually military, but sometimes like in the Iranian revolution, you had like police switching sides. But yeah, you need some kind of, you need some kind of armed force that could, you know, set up an alternative to the present state order. I guess you could consider my comments about the remoteness of that advice from us is not to say that it's bad advice, but to say that we are far from this. The the big difference is kind of what both of you were getting at that this, there is no common turn there is no mm-hmm. socialist parties throughout the world that are vying for revolutionary power you know you know we're very limited right now and so this obviously isn't as feasible but i think this is something we should have right on and you know in the united states what i see online is like you get these anarchists and these weird like cultural revolution maoists you know saying that like oh like you know, fuck soldiers, you know, yeah, being all hardcore about that. And what they fail to see is that, especially for these Maoists who try to act like they care so much about black and brown people, that they fail to see that it's the poorest people in this country that end up doing that grunt work. You know, people who might be sympathetic to your position because they see firsthand how fucked up an awful war is, you alienate because you just want to get your social media points. You know what I mean? You know, that's... I think the very first baby step on this front is telling people like, hey, like, be critical of imperialism. That's good. But don't shit on this individual soldiers. That's just hippie bullshit. <laughs> unless, unless you're into that kind of thing. Yeah, it's a different, sub, it's a different <laughs> subculture, Tom. I know we're getting, we're getting some grief on the latest, latest episode for our fisting talking. So let, let's not get into our scatology. That'll be the oh most. well, if 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 that makes the cock shots of the world queasy, that's uh, that's fine in me. That's fine in me. So, like w- one thing we've talked a lot here <laughs> about, like military force and, and and that, but McNear doesn't mention using the force at all. Like, what about like using the force? The force. 
Are, are we supposed to be Jedi in order to overcome bourgeois society? <laughs> it might, Maybe. Like we should be just we should be taking on everything we can, you know, all forms, all forms. There's, yeah, there's a line that comes from from the Jedi code through the revolutionary catechism through to the twenty one condition <laughs> that maintains the amount of distance and militancy we need from our everyday existence. No, I don't know. Um, can, can you elaborate on what you mean? Well, in a galaxy long, long ago. Uh, uh-huh. No, sorry. <laughs> I did tell you my uh, my favorite Star Star Wars joke. I told you that one already, didn't I? It was. Um, I don't know if I, I've heard I, it. I don't recall. Uh, Darth Vader goes to Luke. He goes, Luke, I know what you got for Christmas. He goes, No, you can't possibly know. And he goes, Luke, I felt your presence. Oh my god. <laughs> Go home, Tom. I think I did hear that. My cringe muscle is is, is well exercised. The amount of puns I've been exposed to lately. Yeah, I give you shit, but I'm a terrible pun punstress. A terrible what? Punstress. Um, yeah. yeah, and I'm a glutton for punishment. And not one pun intended. Oh um, my god. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, so um, what about the uh, what about uh, a col colonial liberation age. movement? Yeah. Shit. Right. And condition eight required that any party wishing to join the Third International must ruthlessly expose the colonial machinations of the imperialists of its own country and must support, indeed, not merely in words, every colonial liberation movement, demand expulsion of its compatriot imperialists from the colonies and conduct systematic agitation among the armed forces against all oppression of the colonial peoples. OK, yeah, I'm down with that stuff, you know. Same. Uh, the only one that I, I feel that I'm slightly not as down with is condition six. There's a lot going on in these conditions. Again, he, he's going to be commenting on these for the rest of the book. So I think there's a lot in the 21 conditions you might not want to sign off on. Can you elaborate on what your concern with condition six is? I can't really. It just kind of feels so hardcore that you're, you're, you're willing to get rid of everybody. I'm not saying that <laughs> from a strategic point of view. And just when I read right. it, sometimes, sometimes when you're reading this stuff, you go, wow, that's... It comes out as harsh. That's hardcore. Yeah. I think a practical way to apply Condition 6 isn't to just be like, and this is what people do, especially on, on Leftbook and online, they, you know, wag their finger and flex their social capital and say, hey, I'm so cool. I'm not a social patriot or a social pacifist. I'm this hardcore person, blah, blah, blah. But really the, the, the proper way to do this is to like teach people... Well, A, like drop these weird larpy terms that, you know, made sense at the time and are kind of like, what the hell is a social patriot, you know, and just tell, teach people that like, you know, if you want to be a socialist, we can't stand for the United States, you know, we can't stand for the United Kingdom. What we need to do is abolish these things and build a new society from the ground up. That that still is a pretty heavy argument, really, like we're, we're proposing to turn the world on its head, but to do anything less is to show, sell ourselves short and, and it's been proven historically not to work. So I think it's, it's more about like, be, more than like flexing on, on the haters, you have to teach people. I suppose my, my problem with this condition six here, reading it now as I see it, is how the hell do you expect to get to a position where you're going to have a majority if you're rejecting everybody who has some social pacifism in them? How do you get to that position of the dictatorship of the proletariat? How do you get to your 60% of the people being revolutionary communists if some of your revolutionary communists are, are a bit flaky? It just seems to me like a hard number to get to. 
Well, I guess the way I think about this is kind of a tangential abstraction of Rosa's Rosa Luxemburg. Oh yes, her quote about you can't there's no you can't write a constitution or like a party program that weeds out every single opportunist. You know, instead, what you need to do is have like education societies or or mutual aid programs that like teach people why these positions are important. Because I do think, especially with social patriotism. It's incredibly really important to teach people that being a social democrat who's pro-American is a dead end. Social pacifism is a bit of a more difficult, that's something I struggled with because my, like I said earlier, my knee-jerk reaction to World War One was like, well, obviously like a policy of peace is what's needed. But what Lenin's getting at here is that like, it isn't simply peace that we need to go for. It's class, class struggle, class warfare. And that's not peaceful. That that basically just comes down to teaching people that the the importance of revolution. the The most common thing I get when like talking to libs about these things is that they say like, "Well, you can't like what you can't throw away the baby with the bathwater. You like reformism has to be like a necessary thing." And they don't understand that's exactly what I mean. Like reform reform isn't bad, but reformism, as opposed to revolution, is bad, right? Basically. We can talk more about condition six when we discuss splits, if, if that's if that's yeah. fair, because it is important for a communist party to not only oppose social patriotism, but in this uh, translation I'm looking at, the insincerity and hypocrisy of social pacifism. It's, it's different. The problem with it is a kind of hypocrisy mm-hmm. and a kind of unwillingness to deal with the kind of conflict that you're likely to see. Mm-hmm. in a revolutionary situation, which this could easily be leveled at me, you know, because I, I'm not interested in, you know, seeing a bunch of, you know, a huge uh, Cheka and a bunch of gulags. But it's this is a complicated issue. Ultimately, I think the take home is that you don't, there's a difference between a lib who doesn't know better and somebody who's advocating this in a hypocritical way. Yeah, and that's what social means here, yeah. is that, you know, these are supposed Marxists that are patriots or Marxists that are pacifists. There's something doesn't exactly line up about that. Exactly. I think there's something inherent in people can read Capital or learn about it and say, yeah, that all totally makes sense. That explains my world. But when it comes down to the crunch, are you going to go out in the streets and kick some ass to change the system? People are just reticent. Yeah, it's a big ass. I suppose he's he's just trying to get rid of those people out of the movement. And as McNair will eventually go on to discuss... This is done with the understanding that the capitalist order is falling apart. It's in where we've hit the the latest or the or the highest, depending on the translation stage of capitalism, and that there's something final about this crisis. McNair actually pins it on the breakup of the British Empire that is being misrecognized as the breakup of global capitalism. Yeah, dude, highest stage of capitalism. <laughs> He's going to do a chapter, a, a subchapter here on Hal Draper and his ideas on Lenin's defeatist strategy. Hal Draper and McNair seem to disagree on some stuff. Do you want to give an overview on what he's going to do in this bit here, Lexi? Yeah. So essentially, I think the note is that Hal Draper is an enormous influence on McNair and is where what he's building on in terms of trying to do a revolutionary analytical Marxism, you might say. And this debt to him is noted by the way that he criticizes Hal Draper by saying Homer has nodded. 
Um, basically, Hal Draper is arguing that these defeatist slogans in 1914 through 16 reflects his tendency to exaggerate, or there's a there's an expression called bending the stick, which means exaggerating one side of one's, you know, very many-sided position in order to kind of conflict with the prevailing mood at the time. And this is noted in Lars Lee's big old book on Lenin, Lenin Rediscovered, that if you read this a certain way, this whole tendency to bend the stick, there's a kind of, you know, lying dishonesty or about and or half-truthiness uh, about saying that this is what somebody means. So one would hope one would hope that Lenin isn't quote bending the stick in this way by arguing for defeatism. Anyway, Draper thinks that the resulting slogan is incoherent and mistaken when he actually needed to do practical shit. Lenin wouldn't rely on 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 a revolutionary defeatist slogan. And essentially McNair feels like that Draper hasn't properly contextualized Lenin's argument. The first thing that he misses is the clear split in the international that he wants to split with the right and anyone who wanted to maintain unity with the right. And and the second is just following from defeatism more generally, that the socialists should carry on anti-war agitation in the armed forces. I'm not exactly sure what Draper is trying to argue because I haven't read his book, but from what it looks like, from the way that McNair is arguing here, it seems that Draper claims that Lenin repudiates anti-war agitation in the ranks of the armed forces. So essentially, that seems to be his grief with Draper. Lenin is inconsistent on this. Also, to kind of summarize this, he goes, right or wrong then, Lenin's defeatism was arguing for two fundamental changes in the strategy of international socialism. The first was a clear split, the abandonment of the historic policy of the unity of the movement at all costs, which had flowed from the success of the Gotha unification, the SPD and the unifications which it had promoted. Okay, so this is like going against Kautsky. This is saying we shouldn't have this strategy of patience then. We should have a strategy of patience and we should cut off, lop off one limb of our socialist, say, politics. We've got rid of the anarchists mm -hmm. in the split for the first international. And now in this one, we're saying, okay, we need to get rid of the right socialists and any pacifists. And then we've got to end up with like a hardcore communist party. And we, now we're going to be patient with this hardcore. Is that what it's saying? Like, I would say it's it's just this, like, you don't have to hold on to unity at any cost. At least as it's presented here, it's not specifically arguing we need to split from this or that faction, but that if there is a faction in your party or movement that is upholding incredibly incorrect positions, then you don't need to be, you don't have to be united with them, which was kind of like the thing since uh, the SPD and the Gotha program. Unity seemed to be so successful, right? Unity was like a huge deal at that time. And so people kind of took it too far. When what, what's being said here is that you don't have to keep unity at all costs. Does that make sense? Yes, but the whole thing about Lenin is that he does abandon the strategy of patience. The strategy of patience that built up the Bolshevik party up to, you know, 1914. And that by trying to split and purify from like the center that's insufficiently like revolutionary. That's kind of unambiguously 
breaking with revolutionary patience. Whereas McNair will end up arguing for a version of revolutionary patience that does split from certain parts of the right or like, you know, the organized right of socialism. But the, the, from a historical sense, this is clearly a break from revolutionary patience. I mean, I, I agree with that, but I think in just this specific point, what's being argued is just a bet, like oh. abandoning unity at all costs for this particular paragraph. That's, that's what I was arguing. The historical context of Lenin's abandonment of the strategy of patience, again, right or wrong, makes sense in that given historical context. Whereas where you have right-wing socialists and left-wing socialists who are impatient in very different ways, they're incorrect. And they're incorrect simply because we don't have what it takes to successfully carry out a revolution. Or with the case of the right-wing, it doesn't make any sense to like let ourselves be absorbed into bourgeois parties for the sake of doing something now. Yeah, but yeah, but I think this is this is just a statement of Lenin's principle and not sure. and not really McNair's like refinement. Yes, I would, yeah, I agree with that. A question we would have then here is: Would the socialist parties and the communist parties in Europe ever got to their size, the size that they were, if they had never done that you know centrist strategy of unity at all costs? I mean, that's a whole can of worms, really. It is. I think the aspect day wouldn't have gotten as big as it did, but the Bolsheviks, I mean, the Bolsheviks are a result of the split. Could they have grown to that size without, with a different strategy? So this is the key thing. I, I, this is where, mm. this, is, this is my problem with these idea of these splits, regardless of how they're used today and, mm -hmm. you know, how endemic they are and ridiculous they are. But can can the organism, it's like this thing, can the organism grow to a certain stage without being parasitic on the, say, right, such that when they split, they can actually be an actor in history? So we're really getting into the nitty gritty of, of McNair's, uh, the exact like contours of the split that he's advocating. And I mean, he does make a note that you're not going to purge your party of nationalist sentiment, that, you know, there are there are going to be parts of the workers movement that are have nationalist sentiment like going on and that you know you can't just like sp split that or purge that because that that's you know it's different than the the organized right or something like that so i mean this is an endlessly complex question and it's i would it's we're running an alternate history like an extreme alternate history to to, um, to really imagine what it would be like without this principle the, i mean the the spa day as it was you know was from its the very beginning a party of of socialist unity, you might say. I mean, I don't know. I don't think it could have gotten <clears throat> as big as it did, but it might not have ex exhausted its you know revolutionary credibility so early. The the broad take home, simple take home, I think from this is that like you shouldn't split over any small bullshit thing. But the SPD did end up losing all revolutionary cre uh, credibility. It's kind of like a tragedy of history, really. The proper thing to do in World War II, or World War I rather, was was to split. And not enough did. And that's not the only reason why the German Revolution failed far from it. But it didn't help, you know? Yeah, this, this is a huge question. And we're going to have a lot of time to talk about splits. So we're really yeah. hung up on it. And it's, it's a really important point of strategy. Maybe it points to the book. Perhaps maybe we should have talked about splits first. So I, I guess you know what it is, is that splits, splits are more like, that's like an issue that is is more relevant to contemporary politics yeah. than you know how we should agitate within the conscripted army. 
I can imagine like an Israeli reading this and, and coming to a different conclusion because, you know, they have something like conscription. This kind of left cultural thing in all these Leninist small parties of the split is probably the most damaging thing to nearly come out of Leninism. Well, well, it's the farcical echo of the enormous tragedy of Stalinism. But yeah. I meant in today's politics, not like overall. Indeed. <laughs> For sure. Indeed. Yeah. In today's politics, it is. Yeah. Yes, Tom. You know, uh, Chinese capitalism, you know, crushing the workers in the name of Lenin and Mao is, is bad. But what's really worse is the SWP. <laughs> oh, Christ. This is how I spend my Saturday night. Right. What are we doing? Limits of defeatism. Okay. Draper's view. I'm just going to read this first paragraph here. Draper's view is that the defeat slogan is simply wrong, meaningless, unless you positively wish for the victory of the other side. It must follow that unless you support such a scenario, you would not go beyond a slogan along the lines of carry on the class struggle in spite of the war. That is, you would not arrive at Lenin's argument that the principal way to carry on the class struggle in such a war is to argue that civil war is better than this war and to undermine military discipline by anti-war agitation and organization in the armed forces. I, I think the point here is that, that Draper is completely wrong about what Lenin meant here and that revolution does, defeatism doesn't mean that you want the other side of the war to win. It means that you want soldiers of both sides to fraternize and really... The, the strategy of revolutionary defeatism only makes sense if every country involved in the war engages every socialist party, I should say, who's in, in, in has a belligerent country should engage in this strategy. So basically you should agitate within the armed forces that a civil war is better than this imperialist war to give like a better example, like, you know, if Germany and Russia were both doing this. Things could have turned out very differently. A year ago, I misunderstood the slogan and thought like, oh, it just means that I want the America to lose because fuck America, which when I thought about it more critically, I'd be like, but how does that make sense? Because if America loses some imperialist war and we're just occupied by some other imperialist country, it's not really any better for the workers movement. So what we want essentially is like that Paul McCartney video, you know, they play football in the trenches in World War One on Christmas Day. And all of the guys get together and say, fuck our commanders. Let's turn the guns on them all. Well, yeah. that really happened, I think. Like, and yeah, that was a, that was in part due to communist organizing. That is exactly what they were hoping for. I think, you know, we've talked a lot about the uh, the whole Russian gambit and the, the hope for revolutions in each country. It's it, it all follows from thinking that this is the terminal phase of capitalism and that this is basically all that's possible. Yeah, I mean, I think that's the biggest flaw of Leninism and continued by Trotskyism is that thinking that the end of the Brit British Empire signaled the end of capitalism, which, you know, pre-World War II is something we've talked about, like, as wrong as Trotsky was about all that, like, if I lived in that time and I saw Nazism rising and I saw the end of the British Empire and Europe was being bombed the fuck, like, I might have agreed with that without any historical, you know, knowledge seemed kind of likely that that was the end of capitalism. So he goes to this uh, next bit where he goes also that he didn't argue that the communists in the colonies should be defeatist in relation to these countries' wars, 
for independence against imperialists. I suppose he's just hammering the he's just hammering the nail here, isn't he? Show how absurd that would be. He goes on to say that he argued in his 2004 series on imperialism that the course of events in 21-1921 has proved that the policy of the anti-imperialist front is not a road to workers' power and socialism. That does not alter the point here that the dual defeatist policy is specifically designed for particular political conditions, those of inter-imperialist wars. Yeah, that, this so, is kind of obscured by the generality with which Draper approaches this argument. He's going to go on and essentially like kind of take the Mickey out of and give some heat to Trotsky and Trotskyist parties over how they use this defeatism. All, all this is to say that this is a specific specific military political conditions, nineteen fourteen through eighteen, which you know allows the sort of political purchase it did. Second paragraph in seventy four, where it says. The same issue was posed a great deal more sharply in 1939 through 45. World War II was indeed a second inter-imperialist war for the redivision of the world. But overlay on this war was a class war against the proletariat and its organizations. Begun with Hitler's 1933 coup, continued with German intervention in the Spanish Civil War, and with the defeatism of much of the French bourgeoisie and officer class in 1940, quizzling in Norway, and so on. The result was that the defeatist position adopted in 1938 by the founding Congress of the Trotskyist Fourth International lacked political purchase, mass support to the extent that it moved to the left against the bourgeois government's move to the communists who, after 1941, unequivocally favored the defeat of the Axis. It did not move in the direction of the defeatists or at best equivocal Trotskyists. The Trotskyists were split by the war, at least in Britain, France, and China and elsewhere between the defeatists and the advocates of the proletarian military policy who argued that the working class needed to take over the conduct of the war in order to defend its own interests. So basically, like, taking that defeatist position from World War One and trying to put it into World War II makes absolutely zero fucking sense. I mean, besides, <laughs> besides the ethical implications just, just being like, ah, we shouldn't worry about ethnic cleansing and, and you know, concentration camps and all that. The, the practical implication of this is that, you know, you shouldn't care about what the Axis is doing to the workers' movement, which is absolutely demolishing it, right? It's not the same as, you know, inter-imperialist with, between capitalist class, like yeah. factions. It's fascist factions, which are trying to crush workers' movements. Yeah, and he'll get, we'll, and we'll be able to talk more about that later because he fleshes out his argument more for that later. But I think just the point of this is that, look, it's setting up, what we're going to be talking about next week is the strategic principles underlying this deployment of revolutionary defeatism. And the point being made here is how specific to 1914 through 18 Lenin's thesis was and the success of his thesis. Towards the end here, it says pretty interesting things. If the war had been fought on German soil, as Engels anticipated in 1891, a German revolutionary defenses policy would have been vindicated. If it had been a short war, the issue would have been brushed aside. It was the enormity of 1914 through 18, and in particular, the stalemated fronts, which powered both a defeatist thesis and the willingness to split the international. In other words, the judgment that defeatism is the right approach to inter-imperialist wars is a concrete judgment about the particular war, but there are strategic principles which lie behind it. And that sets up our, our next week. Yeah, so the take-home, I guess, is, you know, 
the strategic implications are what's important, not some moral posturing. More importantly, there's a huge difference between the world now and the world then. And right. Any you know defeatist principle can't just be abstracted from World War One. I, I read this stuff now, and you can see what a good strategist Lenin was. Yeah. You know, it, it's really sad when you actually end up dealing with trot organizations, and they'll say something like, "Well, Lenin said in 1912, uh, you have to have a newspaper." And still, just have a newspaper. Actually. That'll be their level of analysis. I don't think I'm even exaggerating. Like literally, no, you're not. Absolutely, I've not. been around them. That's and and that think. is how uh, ossified these things become. You know, and we see our, on the radical left, the lack of good strategy and thinking is just so mind-numbingly off-putting. It depresses me when I see how you know this kind of Leninology or Marxology that goes on. You know, probably some people think I'm guilty of it by doing like TSSI series. It is depressing, isn't it? Incredibly. Well, it it points to this. Leninist parties, the, the fruit of this split from a, over a century ago, or about a century ago, are tremendously conservative in a specific way. They're sort of conserving an old revolutionary strategy and turning it into a sort of tactical fetish mm -hmm. and fetish in this context is supposed to evoke a religious kind of granting of power because you don't understand fundamentally the situation which made that strategy effective that's just some difficult like emotional baggage because most people get into leninism usually at least historically uh, most people get into leninism after some kind of either protest or, you know, uprising fails. The appeal, something like Trotskyism is after, you know, Occupy Wall Street or something fizzles, bites the dust, and everyone goes back to work. And you try to say to yourself, well, how do I, how do I keep this fire alive? You know, I, I don't want to just go back to the life I knew before, now that I know that something else could be possible. The tragedy of not having decent revolutionary Marxism is really you end up with people that get sucked into traditionalism. Mm. Traditionalism that thinks of itself as the vanguard of, of a progress, but is really mm -hmm. recapitulating old shit. It's historical reenactment. It's it's, weird. Yeah, it's, it's regressive. It's backwards looking. People think that when I'm critical of Londonism, that I don't care to learn from the 20th century. And that's not true at all. I care deeply about wanting to learn of the 20th century. But what I'm interested in is what can we do differently? Not we just need to do that again because it was historically progressive or whatever. I mean, kind of my own accident, I suppose, but I don't think colonized people needed Stalinism to be liberated from the colonizers. I think they could have figured it out. They needed the poor and assassinated Michael Collins and Eamon de Valera. That's who they needed. And of course, my communist hero, James Connolly. Okay, there we go. On this episode, you heard the theme tune, The Order of the Pharaonic Jesters, and The Night of the Purple Moon by Sunra and his orchestra. Thank you for listening. Please join me for the next episode of From Alpha to Omega. And make sure to check out 
our Emancipation Network, sister podcasts, Swampside Chats, and the General Intellect Unit.